0: On this week's edition of New York Now, Governor Cuomo gets a warning in the ongoing impeachment probe and his office goes on the attack. Jimmy Veelkind from the Wall Street Journal and Josh Solomon from the Times Union join us for this week's panel. Then, state law prevents electric car makers from expanding in New York, but lawmakers say they're crucial to the state's climate goals, Darrell Camp reports. And later, we'll take you back to the front lines of the pandemic where local officials from around the state helped curb the virus together. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now.
1: uh,
0: Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. When several women accused Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment five months ago, it was hard to see a political future for the three-term governor. But in the past few months, that's changed. Lawmakers who called on him to resign at the time now stand with him at public events. And Cuomo still has plenty of strong alliances, both in politics and labor. And in just the past few months, Cuomo's office has gone from silent on the multiple investigations into his behavior toward women to openly criticizing that process. Some of Cuomo's top staff have come out on Twitter and in statements labeling the A.G.'s probe as political, seemingly in an effort to delegitimize the findings before they're released. And just as a reminder, it wasn't always like that. Cuomo openly agreed to the A.G.'s probe in February and said at the time that he supported it and wouldn't get in the way. the facts,
1: please, before forming an opinion. And the Attorney General is doing that review. I will fully cooperate with it,
0: and then you will have the facts. And now the lawmaker leading the impeachment probe into Cuomo says their attacks on the AG could land them in trouble. Let's talk about that and more with Jimmy Veilkind from The Wall Street Journal and Josh Solomon from the TU. Thank you both so much for being here. Morning. So, Jimmy, what do you make of this shift in tone? To me, it would seem to suggest that maybe they think the report is going to be worse than initially thought.
1: Well, clearly it illustrates the high stakes that Governor Cuomo feels this report has for his continued time in office and, and for his, perhaps, uh, bid for reelection next year. In the early days, of course, as we, we heard, he requested this investigation. I think it's important to remember that. He requested exactly. this investigation. And he negotiated asked the attorney too. general to do it. That's right. Uh, and now, it seemed at the beginning that he was essentially bidding for time, and the investigation gave him time. And he used that time to complete a budget, to shore up relationships with key state lawmakers, particularly in the assembly. Uh, and now that those tasks are sort of done, I think what he's doing is trying to place a, a context on whatever this report is going to say. that. It is the product of a politician who perhaps has uh, her sights set on higher office yeah. and could perhaps be a rival to the governor? I think politically,
0: he he's done something that I didn't think he was going to be able to do. I, I this is New York where we had a, a, an Elliot Spitzer and Eric Schneiderman, where within days or even hours with Schneiderman, they stepped out of office. So when this happened to the governor. I guess I just assumed that he was gonna step down, but instead he's taken the last few months and really solidified some alliances both in the legislature and in the city with Eric Adams and maybe that will grow even more. Josh, I should mention that uh, on Thursday evening, the the second floor, the Cuomo administration sent a letter back to the impeachment chair basically saying, um, please don't criticize the way that we talk about this. It's our first amendment right. So what was that all about? Can you explain that a little bit?
2: Well, they were going back and forth. Uh, It was over Twitter, and uh, it was their tweets, this tweet, this tweet, and ultimately the Assembly Chairman for the Judiciary Committee, Charles Levine, said uh, to the Cuomo administration, we don't like one of your advisor's tweets. And furthermore, we think it's potentially intimidation. We think uh, it's threatening. The Cuomo administration came back and said, your letter is threatening. It's a threat. To the first amendment right and uh right now that's where it sits but the judiciary committee could meet and talk about this when i reached out to the chairman he didn't provide any comment in terms of when they would meet
0: which seems to be the the strategy now and and i get that because if you are chairing an investigation you don't necessarily want to comment on it and and tell people what you're investigating and how that's going um, but in terms of that investigation, Jimmy, do we know where it is? I, I think the answer is no, but people have said the AG's report may be wrapping up. But they, So we have these two investigations, the Assembly and the AG. And the Assembly, we just don't really know in terms of timing. Do we know anything more about
1: that? We know that they authorized subpoenas. Uh, I don't believe anyone has reported, and I have not been able to learn exactly who received a subpoena from the State Assembly. I know that there are some people who have spoken to the attorney general's uh, investigators who have not spoken to the assembly's investigators. Mm. Uh, And the sense that I get from lawmakers and other officials around the state is that the attorney general's report should be the the key moment here, Uh, and that, in fact, that could spur the state assembly to action even before the Judiciary Committee comes to a conclusion with its own work.
0: Now, Josh, I I wanna ask you a semi-personal question. You've just come (laughs) here recently from covering state government politics in Florida, where we have Ron DeSantis. We were talking earlier this week, kind of comparing the two. How do you see the Cuomo administration's strategy towards criticism versus the DeSantis administration? Because to me it seems like they're similar, but I want to get your take.
2: Yeah, I, uh, one of the things when I came here a couple, couple months ago but I grew up in New York was, so I've been following New York politics my whole life, was how similar uh, some of the conversation on social media and just the general kind of high-level communications folks uh, respond to to journalists, respond to the media, respond to criticism of them, uh, and limit the access to questions, especially during a time of intense scrutiny to you know the highest administration, uh, the highest official in the administration. So, I, I've seen some similar tones, not to say the politics are similar, but sure. uh, some of the reactions and deflections have had some similar trends there. And speaking of
0: politics, Jimmy, I wanted to ask you, you have covered this governor since he started as governor in 2011. And before that, when he was AG, and we did have a similar situation, kind of what's going on now, where governor or then attorney general Andrew Cuomo started an investigation into the sitting governor. Can you take us back in history?
1: Well, there were a few times that happened. There was the first time was with Elliot Spitzer uh, with the Troopergate probe. Uh, that was a very rapidly concluded investigation in the summer of 2007. Uh, it had to do with the use of state aircraft for um, political purposes uh, and the release of records regarding that use by um, the Spitzer administration. Um, you know, politicians are going to be politicians, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we shouldn't uh, clutch our pearls necessarily when we see them being political. Uh, So there are many people who have pointed out to me in recent months the similarities between an attorney general with investigations that have political consequences and perhaps who harbors political ambitions uh, doing things to undermine or that have a negative effect on the sitting governor. Uh, Lots of people have, have noted the irony um, and I think you can uh, somehow, if you, if you listen in the middle of the night, you can hear Elliot Spitzer cackling sometimes, um, <laughs> just uh, in your dreams or, or in reality.
0: We have about 30 seconds left. Jimmy, you had a great story this week about some donors dropping the governor going into this election cycle versus. 2018 when he last ran can you give us like a 10 second breakdown
1: sure uh what we saw was the governor's fundraising is lower than it has been in previous cycles we saw republicans who had previously given to andrew cuomo moving to republican challengers as those one of those challengers lee zeldin moved ahead of the governor for the first time And we also saw jeff goral a casino owner and real estate developer speak publicly about what he said were some negative experiences he'd had with the Cuomo administration and the way he felt threatened in the past to donate.
0: It's a really interesting read. We will link to it on our website, but Jimmy Veilkind from the Wall Street Journal, Josh Solomon from the Times Union, thank you both so much for being here. So when lawmakers in New York passed the most ambitious climate change law in the country two years ago, they knew it wouldn't be easy and environmentalists say it's not going to happen without curbing emissions from the transportation sector. But legislation that could have made that easier didn't make it through the legislature this year. Daryl Camp has more.
3: Two years ago, the state legislature passed the most ambitious climate change legislation in the country the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act sets a series of time-sensitive goals for the state, like 100 percent zero emission electricity by 2040 and a shift to 70 percent renewable energy by 2030. And for lawmakers, electric vehicles could play a huge role in meeting those goals. But aside from five for electric car maker Tesla, dealerships aren't allowed for electric vehicle companies in New York under state law. There is legislation that would lift the cap and expand access, but it was kept from a vote during this year's legislative session. Assemblymember Pat Fahey, a Democrat from Albany, sponsored that bill and says New York's laws need a jumpstart.
4: Uh, my bill would allow for any electric vehicle dealerships to come in into New York, so whether it's downstate or upstate. We were willing to talk about if there's a cap or a number just as you negotiate any legislation. We are more than happy to negotiate that one, but we don't want this to be just Tesla dominated. We want to grow this industry across the board.
3: On the climate side, Peter Iwanowicz from Environmental Advocates of New York says that electric vehicles are pivotal to reaching the state's goals because they don't produce carbon emissions. Those vehicles would also improve public health, he says, and provide other benefits for consumers.
5: For every dollar somebody puts into the gasoline tank of an internal combustion, they only get 25 cents of value back. 75 cents of that dollar is utter waste. It's heat or it's exhaust. An electric vehicle converts 90 cents of every dollar that I'm putting into this car into charge. So it's a better for the consumer, obviously, and the industry knows this over time.
3: In the state Senate, the measure was sponsored by Todd Kaminsky, a Democrat from Long Island, who chairs the committee on environmental conservation. As the legislative session was coming to a close in June, electric vehicles weren't in the spotlight, but Kaminsky said the issue was still among his top priorities.
1: I'm still, I'm still pushing. We're, we're certainly
0: running into resistance, but we're going to keep pushing until they cl- shut off the lights here next year. Well, I, you know, next year's next year. Right now, we got 48 hours, 72 hours. I'm going to be pushing as hard as I can to, to, to get
3: the direct sales built on. But the bill did not pass, and shortly after session ended, Kaminsky announced a run for Nassau County DA. If he wins that race, the bill will need a new sponsor in the Senate next year, providing a potential setback for the legislation. And the issue is not without its opponents. The Alliance for Automotive Innovation represents the country's top car makers. They declined to comment for this story, but pointed to a statement on the legislation in May. That statement said, quote, There are no impediments in current New York law that would prevent new automakers from opening sales and service facilities tomorrow. They simply need to follow the law's governing vehicle distribution currently on the books. Proponents of this bill would rather disregard New York law and instead demand a special exemption from the legislature. Fahey, however, says that's not quite the case.
4: There is a a compact, if you will. There was a structure set up many decades ago on dealerships and which controls the number of dealerships and controls uh, what cars are being sold such that it is a, um, a long-standing practice of who has them and who doesn't. This is considered to be a competition that hadn't been in the plans from decades ago. We are trying to make the case that this is about growing the pie, not trying to hurt any traditional dealership,
3: the Alliance for Automotive Innovation also said in their statement that the climate goals the state is reaching for can still be met without the passage of this bill. The group said, quote, What will help move this needle are proposals like joining the multi state decarbonization program, which can help accelerate the transition to electric vehicle technology, as can adopting the clean fuel standard. These are things necessary to achieve the state's goals. But supporters say it's about more than just the sale of vehicles, it's also about general infrastructure. Here's Fahey again.
4: It's a a chicken-egg issue. I was actually reading about Henry Ford uh, when the Model Ts were created. Not only did he have to grow dealerships around the country to sell those Model Ts, he he at that time had to push for gas stations because you needed gas stations uh, around the country in order to buy his Model Ts. It is a very similar issue here. It is a chicken-egg.
3: Ultimately, Iwanawick says that increased use of electric cars and compliance with the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act will cause changes to the auto industry and the job market, but he says that change can be a good thing.
5: But we are going to completely move our economy off of fossil fuels because of the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. This is our nation's leading climate law that is going to really transform all of our economy into being one from fossil fuel-based to being one that's electrically driven. So there'll be a lot more jobs for heating and cooling systems that are gonna be electrically powered. Solar manufacturing, wind turbine manufacturing, electric vehicle component manufacturing, and all the coating that's gonna go in involved in that. It's gonna create you know, new jobs and new industries that we can't even conceive of right now.
3: As of right now, the measure remains in the Transportation Committee in both the state Senate and Assembly, with lawmakers not scheduled to return to Albany until early January.
0: All right, we will see where that goes. Thank you so much, Daryl. Moving on now, when the pandemic started, I think we can all admit that no one really knew what to do. The state set up its own plan, but a lot of that responsibility was left to counties. County officials worked alongside the state to boost testing, offer services, and a lot more but that wasn't always easy, and the state wasn't always helpful. Now, county officials from around the state have recorded it all in a new book with proceeds going directly to the state's food banks. I sat down with Steve Aquario from the Association of Counties and Albany County Executive Dan McCoy for a look back. Steve Aquario from NYSAC and Albany County Executive Dan McCoy, thank you both so much for being here.
6: Thank you for having us.
0: Of course. So we are here to talk about this book that the county executives of New York have put together. It's called Our Darkest Hours. I think this is a great idea. It has every county executive down on record what their experience was like during the pandemic. It was very varied, obviously. Every county was different throughout the state. Steve, I wanna start with you. Can you remind our viewers what counties were actually responsible for during the pandemic? Because I feel like it got lost on a lot of people that you were really on the front lines.
7: Well, if our viewers don't know what counties do, they should by now. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Uh, Really, the county government officials, the county executives, like County Executive McCoy, these were the incident commanders. So when we have an emergency, a state of emergency, they have to spring up and act to protect their communities. So initially, with their public health commissioners and the role of local public health, we had to begin to understand testing how to get testing. Where was this virus going? A lot of effort was focused on testing. Then we had to move to where was the infection spreading? So the counties had to do isolation and quarantining. And then ultimately after that, when the vaccine became available, they were the primary unit of government to move these vaccines around, especially to vulnerable populations. So they were doing all of those public health efforts, in addition to trying to keep their small businesses running, their bars, their taverns, small businesses, how to issue grants, loans, how to keep keep society going. And to County Executive McCoy, how to calm the public, how he calmed the public by talking to them and communicating to them that we're going to do the best that we can through this time. Right. There was just a lot going on with counties. They were offering so many
0: services. Dan, in the book that you you write, that you were learning on the fly, and I should mention you're also president of the County Executives of America. Correct. So you were learning on the fly. You write. Tell me what you meant, because this is stuff that you've dealt with before on some level, like flu and you know vaccine distribution, that kind of stuff, but obviously not quite on this level.
6: No, I mean some of the lessons learned for us was that you know, and I'll grab from my own experience being a former firefighter, uh, being a member of the New York Army National Guard and doing a mobilization overseas was looking at this whole situation and how we were getting executive orders federal orders uh... and they were changing the way we we're operating doing business and we had to learn things on the fly we get an order that would come in and say you have to do x y and z and then we figure it out and then an hour later nope this is what you have to do mm-hmm. uh... working things on the fly was like re i said we have to reimagine the workforce you mm-hmm. know and for government and uh, Steve will probably say the same thing government it's hard because we're used to doing things a certain way. Right. We've been doing it for over 300 years in Albany County that way. And to reinvent that wheel and bring technology in, that was the hardest thing because I feel we went 10 years into the future with technology and county government because it's hard to break that stuff in. It's hard to do things differently. Uh, and I kept reminding everyone Steve gets a, a chuckle out of. I go, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Take a step back. Take a deep breath. And uh, we'll get there, but we have to just work together to make it happen.
0: So there was a lot of stuff going on, all of that stuff and more. And Steve, part of this book, I'm not sure who wrote it. Um, It's one of the the later chapters in the book after the county executives. Uh, At the same time that counties were offering all these services, the state was threatening cuts because of obviously the big deficit that we were going into heading into 2021. What were the consequences of that?
7: Well, the it was a guillotine hanging over our heads. It was a very scary period of time to fight this public health threat, but at the same time fight a fiscal crisis. The book details the economic crisis that faced these county executives who predominantly rely on sales tax. And sales tax just went dramatically through the floor. Uh, We we didn't know what to expect. People were not going to restaurants anymore. The taverns were closed. Macy's was closed. There was nowhere to go out and buy purchase things. The car sales were down, uh, appliances were down. So they had to deal with all that. The book is dedicated to those who lost their lives, the families who lost their loved ones. But the book is also dedicated to the public servants, county executives, county emergency management coordinators, county commissioners of health, county coroners, and all those public servants who who led through this effort. Without this book, we would never have this detail left for those that come behind us. Right, this, I love this as a part
0: of history. To be honest with you, people 100 years from now can look at this book and say, these are what the counties did during the time. Hopefully we don't have another pandemic. I think that's what everybody hopes, but at least we have this to refer to. Um, Dan, I wanna go back to you because you offered a lot of services and every county did during the pandemic. Correct. You delivered food to families who needed it you set up an internet connection for students at a school that may not have that internet connection. And I think part of that exposed a lot of issues that maybe the state or even counties have to work on. What do you see as the long-term issues that come out of this that, that you may not have known about before that either the state or at the local level can be addressed?
6: You pointed to something, a book for the future, right, so we don't repeat our history, and we have a habit of doing that in this great country of ours, yes. repeating bad history because we forget about it. But one thing I've, I've learned from all the things I've handled for the last nine and a half years, from bomb trains to the opiates, we talk about it during an emergency, and then when the emergency's over with, everyone goes home and says, all right, we're through it. Mm-hmm. But we have to take the lessons learned and we have to take issues like you just said, the internet um, equity that affects different neighborhoods differently in Albany County. And we got to make sure we continue to follow through on that. And I, I hate to say it, government has not a problem that we don't. And we tend to like say, okay, yeah, we addressed it, we had a press conference, we're trying to do this. Uh, to me, and I can't, I have to commend my staff, Dan Lynch, my deputy uh, county executive and everyone in my office that uh, we are continuing to do that, to follow through on internet, around the county on different things. But like Steve said, like policies and uh, the way the Senate and Assembly set up different policies or the governor, it ties our hands a lot of the times and people don't realize. And we gotta continue to move the ball forward and make sure we address the issues that you're saying and continue to work with the Senate in the assembly. And the great thing about the NISAC organization is it just doesn't represent counties. It represents the 57 counties upstate New York and the five bureaus in New York uh, City. We're working with legislatures and, and, and really just interworking. working. If people read that book, Um, It wasn't a pad, it wasn't a victory lap for us. It was just to identify the decisions we did working together, like Steve said, calling each other at one o'clock in the morning at midnight, uh, sharing PPE when something came short and we couldn't get it through the state or we couldn't get it through the feds, helping out other nursing homes. And uh, we just wanted to tell that story. So not just so people know in the future, but the next county executives or the next health commissioners can read it and say, okay, this is how we handled it.
0: You brought up a really good point talking about the Senate and the Assembly and the governor. There was a lot that happened at the state level that counties weren't necessarily warned about. And Steve, later in the book it's written that there was a shifting power structure between the state and local governments. Can you talk about that a little bit and what the impact of that was? Because you were dealing with a time where the governor was issuing executive orders and because of the disaster emergency, all local laws were suspended and superseded.
7: Well, first I want to acknowledge George Latimer. George Latimer is the Westchester executive. That was the epicenter of where this all started in New Rochelle. And without his work in Westchester and what happened down there, we would have had no idea what was going to come at us. So we did learn mental health challenges. County Executive Latimer reached out to the county executives, told us the stories about mental health challenges and how to be prepared for it. And we learned an awful lot from that. Let's remember what was happening back then. We were in the midst of a presidential election too. We had Washington DC, the COVID-19 became a very political issue. The state of New York almost at war with Washington DC. We had a state budget that was negotiated in the midst of all this and the politics that was going on and enacting that state budget in a remote manner. They were not in the chambers and these conflicting executive orders and the and the things that the counties had to do to try to interpret those executive orders it was very difficult one of the challenges we had was personal protective equipment how to get that equipment from the state from the federal government the executive orders saying one thing and then the community needs and the needs in the field were much different than they were at the state level. So a lot of conflict between the counties and the state, a lot of conflict between the state and, the, and the, uh, Washington, but somehow these county officials managed to make it work and, make, and get the job done and, and they, ju- they did just that.
0: Right, I think at the end of the day, this is really a story about collaboration between county officials at a time where there was just so much confusion coming from the state level, coming from the legislature, coming from the federal government. Um, But we are out of time. I could talk about this book all day. Uh, It's called, Our Darkest Hours, New York County Leadership and the COVID Pandemic. You can get it wherever you buy books. Albany County Executive Dan McCoy and Steve Aquario from NYSAC, thank you both so much for being here to talk about
6: this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us.
0: And again, all proceeds from that book will go to the food banks from around the state. If you pick it up, let me know what you think over on our website, that's at nynow.org. But we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks for watching
3: this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.